Recorded live. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the 14th episode of OT Leadership Live. My name is Emily Vaught, and I will be co-facilitating our conversation this evening along with my colleague, Bill Wong. For those of you new to OT Leadership Live, welcome. And for those of you who have participated in our past episodes, welcome back. We have a very special episode planned for you tonight, and I am very excited to hear from our guests, Alexander Lopez, Dr. Patricia Jean Preeson, and Rachel Ashcraft. We hope that our conversation today provides you with knowledge and inspiration to develop innovative occupational therapy practices or utilize the expertise of occupational therapy in visionary ways to achieve significant client outcomes to keep the profession relevant and responsive to the changes occurring in healthcare. Before we start tonight's conversation, I'd like to review some housekeeping items in order to ensure our call runs as smoothly as possible. If you are on your phone and you haven't done so already, please make sure that you press mute. If you are on your computer, please mute your microphone in order to minimize the static and feedback that can occur during the recording. Only the person currently speaking should have their device unmuted at that time. If you are on the TalkShoe website, you will notice that there is a chat room available. Please feel free to type any questions or comments throughout the episode, and we will address those along the way or at the end of the episode during the Q&A session. If you, are, if you are not by a computer and are joining us via your phone, you can always live tweet with us using the hashtag OTLeadershipLive. For those of you who may have to leave early or if you know anyone who wasn't available to participate live this evening, we are recording this episode and we'll be posting a link to the recording on AOTA's social media website, OT Connections, under the Leadership Forum, which can be easily accessed by visiting communityofleaders.org. Before we get started, I would also like to provide you with a brief introduction regarding OT Leadership Live. Our co-hosts today, myself, Emily Vaught, and Bill Wong are occupational therapists who serve on AOTA's Community of Leaders, an AOTA group or community of practice with a shared interest in leadership within the profession of occupational therapy. The group is dedicated to promoting occupational therapy leadership and building an AOTA leadership community. OT Leadership Live is a podcast-style series of discussions that the Community of Leaders hosts on a regular basis. The series was designed to reach practitioners and students with an interest in leadership across a variety of relevant professional topics. Through these conversations with leaders in our profession, we hope to foster a dialogue about professional leadership and occupational therapy and provide an opportunity for direct engagement with AOTA members and leaders within the profession. For tonight's episode, we are joined by three very distinguished guests, Alexander Lopez, Dr. Patricia Jean Preeson, and Rachel Ashcraft to learn how these exemplary leaders have developed innovative and or non-traditional occupational therapy practices for underserved populations and or utilize the expertise of occupational therapy in new visionary ways and how you can too. It is my pleasure and honor to introduce our guests. Alexander Lopez is an Associate Professor of Occupational Therapy at New York Institute of Technology. Mr. Lopez received his Bachelor of Science degree in Occupational Therapy from Keene University in 1997 and a Juris Doctor from New England Law in 2004. As a licensed occupational therapy practitioner and attorney, he further developed his skills as a community organizer and advocate. Mr. Lopez has been instrumental in bringing non-traditional services to governmental and private community-based organizations. In 2007, Mr. Lopez founded PAR4, a golf mentoring program that utilizes the occupation of golf as a medium for developing valuable life skills. Since its inception, PAR4 has grown from serving 10 adolescents to adolescents in at-risk communities in New York to serving children in Utah, New Jersey, and Nevada. Each of the programs is managed by esteemed faculty from Keene University, University of Utah, and Toro University. In 2013, Mr. Lopez founded Inclusive Sports and Fitness Inc., ISS, 
a sports training facility designed to help children with disabilities transition into mainstream sports. ISS utilizes best evidence approaches in occupational therapy and neuroscience to advance socio-emotional, cognitive, and motor performance. Mr. Lopez collaborates with researchers and engineers to introduce innovative and more reliable interventions for children. Welcome, Alex. Thank you. Next, we have Dr. Preeson. Dr. Preeson developed the SPOTS model, sustainable population-based occupational therapy sites from an elective course she created to give students practical skills necessary for designing and implementing their own sustainable fieldwork sites in underserved populations. She directed what became a model welfare to work program with VESID, HRA, the Board of Education, helping 2,000 welfare recipients a year secure and retain gainful employment. Dr. Preeson developed a program that helped displaced workers affected by the 9-11 tragedy to find work and for those not ready to provide necessary mental health OT intervention and psychiatric referrals. As Managing Director of Pathways to Housing, Dr. Preeson took charge of a $12 million Housing First consumer-driven organization that provided scattered site apartments to homeless individuals with mental illness and substance abuse in New York City. As executive director of the Fostering Connection, Dr. Preeson managed the provision of weekly pro bono psychotherapy services for life to people affected by foster care. As a consultant to InCube, Dr. Preeson helped people with mental illness start and run their own businesses. She uses her doctorate in psychoanalysis and psychology to help psychosocial clients with barriers to occupation for which standard OT mental health practices may not be effective. Welcome, Patricia. Thank you. And last but certainly not least, we have Ms. Rachel Ashcraft. She is an occupational therapist devoted to establishing innovative practices to serve children in foster care. Her work focuses on decreasing the inequality gap in therapy services and community participation opportunities that children in the foster care system experience. As a foster parent herself, Rachel saw firsthand many of the inequalities that children in foster care routinely face in regards to healthcare accessibility. Recognizing the value that occupational therapy could bring to one of our nation's most vulnerable populations, Rachel founded a nonprofit 501c3 organization, Foster the Future Alabama. Foster the Future Alabama serves children in foster care, foster parents, and educates professionals involved in the child welfare system. Foster the Future Alabama currently hosts events providing free occupational therapy screenings to children in foster care, raises funds to pay for needed services not covered by the child's Medicaid, and also provides continued education for foster parents, social workers, and other professionals. Rachel works diligently to build partnerships within the community and finds ways to increase opportunities for occupational therapy to meet the needs of vulnerable children. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you again to our guests for their time and willingness to share their insights with us. We are so honored to speak with you today. And to all of our listeners, if you haven't already, we ask that you please ensure that your device is muted at this time. To our guests, today's discussion will follow a question and answer format. I will pose the first question and then give you both the opportunity, give you three the opportunity to answer. Each candidate will have approximately four minutes to answer each question. That being said, let's start with our first question. I will direct the first question to Alex. Alex. How do you define leadership? What role does innovation play in leadership? And are there any distinct qualities or habits which define an innovative leader? Well, thank you for the opportunity. And um, the best way I could describe uh, leadership or, or innovation in leadership is that uh, that person that departs from the status quo, that pushes the limits of their practice, perhaps explores the limits of 
the Standards or, or Practice Act um, within the local, state, or national organizations. Um, it's about creating a future and moving beyond your comfort level. Uh, the, a good leader is someone who kind of finds um, sort of harmony between their personal and professional vision. Uh, an exercise I often do with my students is identifying what they hope to find in the future, uh, what, what they, how they see themselves in the future as a person, and then separately as a professional, and finding a kind of um, how that kind of can be merged together. So um, it's really important that you, you – it's hard to be passionate about something if it's not connected to who you are. Another thing I think is important in leadership is a willingness to take a chance. Um, most of my career I found that um, opportunity was always available, um, but actually acting on the opportunity was something that was difficult for me. Uh, so you have to kind of be – you can't be afraid to take a chance um, another th another quality um, that I think is vitally important is being self-aware, knowing your limitations, knowing how far you can go, and finding people and resources that can sort of fill the void for those um, those you know the limitations that you might have. So I think those are probably the most distinct um, features or qualities in an individual, uh, in my experience. Great. Thanks, Alex. Patricia, how do you define leadership? What role does innovation play in leadership? And are there any distinct qualities or habits which define an innovative leader? Well, I agree with Alex. Very well spoken. Um, to add to what Alex has said, um, I can identify some personal attributes that I believe a good innovative leader should have. I think it's helpful to be able to work with people's strengths to foster teamwork towards an innovation. I think helping others develop themselves and their creative ideas is very important. Uh, to be able to make tough decisions, to remain ethical, to get over barriers is very important. Someone who never gives up but tries different ways. And in order to do that, I think the person has to be flexible um, also helps to be very fair with everybody that you're working with. Um, someone who can stay focused because there are a lot of things that can get in the way of your goals, but uh, <laughs> focus and a vision uh, is very important. And I agree with what Alex said, to have insight about yourself and other um, people and things around you so that you can be creative. So I think that those are the most important qualities that a leader could have. Great. Thank you so much. And Rachel, how do you define leadership? What role does innovation play in leadership? And are there any distinct qualities or habits which define an innovative leader? Well, it's hard to have too much more to say other than what Patricia and Alex already said. I just second everything that they said, especially what Alex said about being willing to take a risk and what Patricia said about teamwork and being ethical and being able to try a lot of different ways. I had all of those things written down myself. And I would say the only thing for me that I would really add that has been helpful to me is really understanding what opportunities to say yes to and to say no to as opportunities present themselves and staying really true to the mission of what you're trying to do um, as you work towards whatever your vision is. All right, thank you, Gus. So now this is our turn, my turn to ask the next question. Patricia, can you tell us all about your story and what inspired you to lead in your respective area of practice? I would be happy to. I began my career as a flute performer having studied at a con uh, conservatory in Chicago during my early teenage years. And I always loved music and I always loved science, but after spending years in a lab working on a doctoral dissertation in biophysics, I realized that I preferred working with people more than machines. And at that time, I was a little bit burnt out, so I also felt that I needed some stress management, time management, and social skills. So I became an occupational therapist which I've been enjoying for the last 30 years. 
Uh, I began as a staff OT in mental health within a medical model where I advanced to director of occupational, recreational, and creative arts therapies. And I became aware of the gaps in OT services, especially with underserved populations within community settings. I saw a lot of recidivism with people coming in and out of the clinic. So I left the medical model to develop mental health OT in underserved community settings, which were void of OT. So I conducted research, created models, established best practices, published, conferenced, and trained interns in order to provide psychosocial OT intervention in a large variety of emerging practice areas. And that's my story. Wow, that's a lot to talk about. So, Rachel, (laughs) can you tell us all about your story and what inspired you to lead in your respective area of practice? Sure. So the vision of the nonprofit that I started honestly just really developed out of the experiences that I had as a foster parent. And so the mission of what I'm doing is really, really personal to me because my husband and I have been foster parents for around five years now. We've had over 20 children come through our home, um, ages infant through 17. So I've been a mama to a wide range of kids of a wide range of ages for at least anywhere between a few days to a few years. And um, it was really through this experience of being a foster mom that I saw the deep, deep level of needs that these children are experiencing. And I also honestly had to confront the needs that I had myself for more education and resources on trauma. And um, so just as a foster parent and getting to see up close what the specific difficulties were that the children that were in my home were facing and in their school and in their communities and with their friends, that's really what led to the creation of Foster the Future Alabama. And as I was thinking one day about occupational therapy and the role of OT in foster care and, you know, what could that look like, I honestly one day just printed out the whole framework. And I sat down with it, and I had it scattered out on my dining room table, and I just wrote on the whole thing anywhere that I thought OT applied to foster care. (laughs) And I ended up with a lot of notes, and I really came away determined from that moment that OT had an obligation as a profession to be doing more for these kids, and that I specifically, as an OT, had an obligation to be doing more for these kids. So that's really what I'm working towards building here in Birmingham. And um, honestly, what really inspired me the most was just the kids that were in my home and that I was a parent to, you know, for the time that they were here for. And as I just witnessed barriers after barriers that just sometimes seemed to jump in front of them, it made me realize that I couldn't just sit by and watch that happen without doing something. Um, And sometimes my kids are my best teachers. And I once had a child who, he was around age five, and he came to me and he said, "Um, Miss Rachel, what do other foster kids do when their foster mom isn't an OT that can help them? (laughs) (laughs) Well, what do other foster kids do, you know? And what am I going to do about that? And so that's really why I'm here today trying to do this work. That's an awesome story. So now I'm going to direct my question to Alex. Can you tell us all about your story and what inspired you to lead in your respective area of practice? Certainly. I don't know how to follow Rachel, but I'll give it a try. Um, I don't, I, I, you know, I, I, it's just like uh, Pat's and uh, Rachel, Rachel's story. Um, And you can see the connection between who we are and the client and how we've been inspired by both of that, both of those processes. Uh, I grew up in Newark, New Jersey. I was a product of the inner city. I was the only one of three or um, uh, four boys that went to college. Uh, and, in fact, only two of us only graduated from high school. So I uh, didn't have much prospect for the future. I didn't have uh, many opportunities or occupations that were health-promoting in nature. They were more health-compromising. Um, my my favorite occupation back in the day was break dancing. So I'm one of the original break dancers. Maybe at the conference I'll show you. <laughs> but um, <laughs> um, I uh, I discovered occupational therapy in the army. 
Um, a friend of mine was in the Army at the time and was an occupational therapist. And um, after the Army, I I was so fascinated by the profession that I, I, I was driven to become an occupational therapist, went to college and became an OT. Uh, and uh, after practicing for several years, primarily in like level one trauma care and burn care, I moved to Long Island and was trying to kind of uh, kind of reclaim who I am and what I wanted to do. And I started the PAR4 program because I moved into a more of an affluent neighborhood where there weren't many people like me. Um, so I kind of, you know, was looking for a way to sort of return to my roots. And that's how I de- designed a PAR4. So PAR4 was a program designed for children who were at risk living in communities where there were um, uh, gangs and, and primarily MS-13 and the Bloods and the Crips. And I wanted to use an occupation to teach them uh, skills, that life skills that could be used in adulthood or transitioning into adulthood. And I found that golf, my wife taught me how to golf. Um, and uh, and I found that as an occupation, it had a lot of value to it. Uh, it was a very social sport. It gave you an opportunity to talk. So there was dialogue and back and forth. There was self-officiating, so you had to be an honorable person and um, follow the rules and and be disciplined in that. And so I, I thought it was an amazing sport to introduce to people who might want to get to know each other at, while playing uh, a particular sport. So I developed occupa- uh, the um, PAR4 program to bring at-risk youth together with college um, college students from various programs at Stony Brook University uh, to learn how to play golf together so they both learned the process. And what the what the program did was actually brought me back to who I am and sort of brought me back home. So it was a, a it sort of satisfied my need for um, feeling a certain degree of comfort with with a population and also satisfied the need of, needs of the community. Um, my greatest source of inspiration has been the day-to-day interactions I've had with my clients. I think um, one of, what's unique about being an occupational therapist is that you get to embark on sort of finding solutions to deal with barriers, hindrances, and obstacles in your life. And I think um, being able to team up with someone to do that is really a unique experience in occupational therapy. Um, as PAR4 gr- had grown, it's been in existence for about 11 years now. It's the first thing that I've done that had any kind of um, longevity. <laughs> but um, the uh, program grew, and as it had grown, there were inter- interesting children that, that had run through our program. They had different abilities, some with autism spectrum disorder, some with ADHD. And I had recognized that a child with autism was um, who was nonverbal, um, had really poor motor skills, dyspraxia, or developmental coordination disorder, and other issues, uh, starting to develop skills, motor skills, social skills, and cognitive skills that were not apparent when he started the program. And so I started looking at the, uh, you know, exploring um, the best evidence approaches in mentoring and uh, sports training and um, high-intensity exercises that can kind of facilitate cognitive performance and designed inclusive sports and fitness. And in doing so, um, I started with just eight kids, and now we have uh, grown dramatically. And just I'm proud to say uh, a week ago, we received a grant for $100,000 to expand the program. So it is uh, uh, the one thing I can say about the um, practice of occupational therapy that it's there, there's limitless potential, but the potential you can find within the client, and the client uh, can drive the individual to be the best occupational therapist they can be. Wow! Congratulations! And oh, funny yeah, you say you. that. Yeah, because like I'm a golfer myself, and I read oh, stories of. Yeah, so I was like at the OTA conference. That's one of the things I've got to do. Got to go golfing. And speaking of which, I know personally, I read some autobiographies through my OTD, and I was one of the authors, and one of his occupation was also golf, and he was also autistic as well. So I find that it was an interesting connection for golf and OT, for sure. So I definitely yes, see that yes. from the first, first person perspective. 
So now mm-hmm. we'll direct to Emily for the next question. Hi. All righty. So first I'm going to address Rachel with this next question. What leadership skills, strategies, or supports did you call upon to help you achieve your vision? And how crucial was the role of mentorship during this process? Great. Yeah. So as far as intentional strategies, I would say one of the things that was the most important for me was being really intentional and true to the mission from the very beginning. Um, When you start talking about I'm going to serve vulnerable children, then there becomes no end to kind of the ways that that could happen and the ways that that could look. And so making sure that I was setting limits on the way that we set out our vision to be very true to occupational therapy and what I believed from that standpoint, as well as really specifying the population that I was trying to help was really important from the very beginning. And then honestly, I would say the biggest thing for me from the beginning to now and probably ongoing is good mentorship. Um, I am such a believer in good mentorship because I've benefited so much from good mentorship and from people that were willing to, you know, just pour into me professionally and help build me up and direct me in good ways. Um, And I can honestly just say I was so ill-equipped to start this nonprofit when the idea started in my head. I did not know anything about 501c3s or grants and Actually, when I initially first had this idea of getting some grants to help some kids in foster care, I was at AOTA conference and a lot of years ago, and I went to this presentation um, that was with the um, the foundation. So they, the AOTA foundation had a presentation about how to get a grant and kind of what it's about and how to apply for that. And so I went to that thinking, well, great, I'll go and I'll learn how to do that, and then I'll get a grant for kids in foster care. And I left feeling so dejected because I didn't even know that you had to be an academic institution or a nonprofit to even get a grant. That's how little information I knew. So basically that course was super helpful to me as far as being a super eye-opener and all the things I did not know. So as I'm leaving that course at AOTA, I run into some colleagues of mine who are professors at UAB, which is also in Birmingham where I live, um, Sarah Tucker and Chris Edson. And they, you know, just say to me, oh, what'd you go to? I said, well, you know, I went to this thing and I thought I was going to learn about grants, but turns out that you have to have a nonprofit. And to me, that was like the end of it. All I saw was a barrier. I knew I didn't know how to do it on my own. I, I just felt like that was the end. And I'll just never forget even where we were standing and what the room looked like and everything in that moment because they both just looked at me and said, well, then you're going to need to make one. (laughs) And they didn't even just say that and encourage me, but they followed up with me after the conference. And they talked to me about some coursework that they could do through UAB partnership with me, through where they do do like a non-traditional coursework with people their students all about community-based and systems-level OT. And so they had already been developing this kind of outside-of-the-box innovative practice within their academic institute, and then I had this idea. And so because of that, they were able to kind of partner with me with their outside-of-the-box idea, with my outside-of-the-box idea. And then now we have this thing in our community that's just this great opportunity for kids in our community. And it would not have existed um, at all without the mentorship that I had through them to help kind of walk me through those early steps of how to even find the right information to get started and get going. Um, and so I just could never say enough about the mentorship that I've received. And now it's a really neat opportunity because now I in turn get to have students through UAB with Foster to Future Alabama and so I get to kind of give back in that way as far as mentoring students through what non-traditional practice can look like. So it's really been a win-win all around. Um, And I've I've had a lot of other mentors along the years that have all poured into me. I could do a whole hour on just how grateful I am to the people in our profession that have helped me along the way. But um, I'd encourage anyone who's listening today, if you're, you know, if you have a passion and you just don't know what to do next to seek out mentorship, I find, in occupational therapy that 
we're a kind profession. We want to build each other up. We want to see our profession succeed. We want to see other practitioners succeed. And so there's just not really a shortage of people that are willing to mentor you if you're willing to put in the work. And so I think that is one of the most important things. Well, that's incredible. Alex, what leadership skills, strategies, or supports did you call upon to help you achieve your vision, and how crucial was the role of mentorship during that process? Um, I think one of the most important things uh, in terms of skills or, or strategies is that you recognize um, that you are part, if you have a vision for something big, um, that you have a plan and you understand that it's going to be a partnership, that you can't be the sole owner of the idea. And I think that's one of the major things that some some OTs or even other professionals who embark on starting a program or an organization have to understand because um, a, a, you know, a true leader um, recognizes that everything they do is part of sort of a system and there's a partnership involved. And uh, an, a perfect example is that I, got, I went to the local politicians when I started PAR4 and said, you have a problem in your community. There's violence, there's drug activity, there's gang uh, activity, and um, I'd like to present an idea to you that I think could be very helpful. And I presented to them the idea, and they were very much for it. Um, and when they um, accepted my my proposal and said, let's let's try to make something of this, they kind of uh, helped facilitate the process. And I kind of was able to kind of step back and allow them to take a little bit of ownership of it. They were able to get multiple press, the New York Times, uh, the local newspapers, uh, ABC and NBC News involved in the process. I didn't have to get my own PR people. I didn't have to put a press release out. A press release from Alex Lopez was was nothing. <laughs> like no one would recognize my name or who I was. So I was able to use their brand, their name, to help kind of facilitate the process. And so I think it's essential that people kind of demonstrate a degree of humility and learn to share in the success and even the failures. And one thing I, like, I, I often say is that um, allow others to receive credit for your triumphs and accept responsibility for their failures. Um, I think it's important that a, a, a leader recognizes those things. Wow, that is such a great concept, Alex. I totally agree. And to Patricia, what leadership skills, strategies, or supports did you call upon to help you achieve your vision? And how crucial was the role of mentorship during this process? Well, to achieve my visions, I try to create win-win situations that solve a lot of needs or issues with one innovation. And in order to be effective, I feel I had to learn many different systems from the bottom up in order to create visions that were actually helpful and realistic. So I consider everyone and every experience as valuable and therefore as my mentors. I think it's important to learn all along the way. I think you can learn from negative people and from what some people would call failures. Uh, but in reality, I don't think that there really are any failures, and I think negative people can be inspired. Um, in addition, I think lifelong membership or mentorship is sacred. It's a natural connection between like-minded, passionate people, and it's something that can't be forced. And I think that these are the type of people that you can trust, and they often ask for nothing in return. And I've been very fortunate to have these special people in my life. So I feel very blessed. So I don't believe that there's anything bad, and I think you can learn from, from all of your experiences and from everyone you meet. Okay. So I guess um, it's my turn to ask the next question. So this question is directed to Alex. As we work towards Vision 2025, what must students and practitioners understand about emerging and innovative leadership to help fulfill our profession's potential and to expand our reach as a profession? 
So um, I always say, um, it, even I, I follow this, this, um, this, these words of advice, is that when you recognize that we are a science-driven, evidence-based practice, um, there's so much that we can give to the community. And I, uh, the other thing is that because the scope of occupations are so broad, we should recognize that as generalists in occupational therapy, or health and wellness, um, we have the luxury of being innovative and, and flexible. Um, I like to include a lot of technology in my practice. So science and technology are changing the landscape of practice. Uh, and I think even if you don't have the skill or knowledge set to kind of utilize different technologies in your practice, um, everything now in uh, in, in, the, in the science and technology industry, particularly in, in computer science and engineering, is very intuitive. And I think most people can learn how to integrate technology into their practice just given the opportunity to, to kind of fool around with the technology. Um, if, if you're going to be a leader in, in, in today's society, I think in, in today's healthcare environment, you have to be able to integrate technology into your practice. And I think, you know, although it may be outside your comfort zone, um, there are so many opportunities out there. And I, one, one way to do that, and within my school at NYIT, we've, I've reached out to engineers um, who are very, very, very excited about working with occupational therapists and um, designing innovative um, concepts and um, um, technology for both the evaluative process as well as the intervention process. So if you're going, if um, you have a vision for the future and and working um, in 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 a in I our industry, you, so. I think you. Oh, I'm sorry. If you if you have a vision for the future and working in our in our industry, I think looking at how mm -hmm. technology can facilitate the process. Okay. So now next for next guest I'm gonna to question to is Patricia. As we work towards get a PDU for class. Oh hello? Yeah, I think somebody on the background is saying something. So if you're not a guest, can you mute yourself so that I can you can reduce the feedback, please? Thank you. So as we are saying, this question is directed to Patricia. As we work towards Vision 2025, what must students and practitioners understand about emerging and innovative leadership to help fulfill our profession's potential and to expand our reach as a profession? Well, Alex, I agree with you. Technology is so important. And I always tell my students that they're coming into OT in such a wonderful time of change because there's so many different things that are happening now. A lot of them are due to technology and changes that are making rehab um, a different world than what we have right now. And I hope I'm around long enough to see all those changes myself. <laughs> but certainly I think that we need to expose our students um, to these technologies and different innovations as much as possible and different emerging areas of practice so that um, they know what's possible in occupational therapy. Um, so often I tell people I could turn anything into OT. Like someone will say something about, oh, you know, I have an issue with this or this is happening. And I'm like, well, that's OT. OTs could do that. <laughs> and I see so many opportunities for OTs just day to day. Um, and there's so much to do that I, I want to try to inspire everybody that comes near me <laughs> Um, in, into what could be possible. So, for instance, every year I give a lecture on OTs in space. And you'd be surprised to find out how many different mental, physical, and spiritual systems are affected by changes in gravity and isolation and the wonder of being in space. And none of my students really seem to know that there have been OTs performing research in zero gravity on a space station for a number of years now. So I say sky's the limit, not to make a joke, but the sky <laughs> is the limit. Um, I think you should be a role model, do it, and then talk about it. Spread the word, open people's minds, and then encourage other people to move forward in whatever it is that they want to do. 
And that, I think, is how we can motivate people to be innovative leaders in changing times. Yes, I remember that. It was like it was very nicely said. I remember one of my late mentors, her name was Terry Olivazelo. Her thing who always told me is like, if you're doing something great, you gotta toot your horn. So I definitely <laughs> agree. Yeah, that was that good message right there. And now the question is directed to Rachel. As we work towards Vision 2025, what must students and practitioners understand about emerging and innovative leadership to help fulfill our profession's potential and to expand our reach as a profession? Well, I definitely agree with everything that Alex and Patricia are saying, and I really would like to hear Patricia's lecture on OT and space. It sounds really great. <laughs> I'm learning a lot right now about this. Um, but I totally agree with what she said when she said, I can turn anything into OT. That's how I feel about OT. And my husband will even joke, like, well, don't you just think everything's OT? I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> I can see things everywhere, so maybe. But um, but what I really think when we go back to the Vision 2025 and we're talking about, you know, maximizing health, well-being, quality of life, where people, populations, communities, we're talking about effective solutions, you know, this impacts everybody. And so... OT really is everywhere, and I really feel like that's a big part of our vision 2025 is understanding that we're not limited by places we've previously been defined. We can excel there, but we can define new areas, too, because our society has a lot of occupational needs, and we can rise to that occasion. And I think for me and just for our profession, I, I just want to see all of us not being afraid to make a place for ourselves instead of... You know, for me, sometimes I want to be invited to a space. You know, I want someone to say, hey, you know, could you come do this great job that I don't even know about, but maybe you could do it. You know, I always want to be invited to a space. I've really had to learn that I've got to demonstrate my value at the table and make a place for myself and for the profession of occupational therapy in this area that I want to practice in. And I just think, you know, there's space for all of us as OTs, no matter where you are, no matter what your passion is to utilize that and kind of have that vision 2025 in your head, you know, as you're implementing your passion. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing that, Rachel. All right. So our, to our next question, we will start with Patricia. How should we be preparing students and practitioners to be innovative leaders within the field of occupational therapy? Well, I can give you an example of an attempt of a model that I made um, to try to do that very thing. And it, um, it's called the SPOTS model, and it stands for Sustainable Population-Based Occupational Therapy Sites. And it came about because I was teaching at Turo College a business administration course, and I realized that the students were creating wonderful business plans as part of their course assignments, but they really never got to implement them. And the same way with the patient education course. The students were producing these beautifully constructed programs to promote patient education. And I would say to them, that's great. I hope you get to do it someday. And then if you do, tell me about it. And, of course, nobody ever got back to me and told me, oh, I was able to do this wonderful program I set up about bullying and teaching teachers what, how to deal with bullying in high school. That was one of the examples. So... I wanted to create the opportunity for students at the master's level to use the, these ideas or other ideas that they would have um, so that other people could benefit from them. And at the same time, we were experiencing a lack of community-based fieldwork sites, and just so happens that my Turo supervisor had asked me to develop a population-based course. So in order to try to create a win-win situation here, I was able to develop the SPOTS model which guides students through the process of creating their own fieldwork sites, which can be used for future level one and two fieldwork opportunities, and also hopefully make potential jobs for occupational therapists in underserved communities. So students have participated so far, and they found it to be extremely challenging, but very rewarding. And I can attest to the fact that there is such a big difference between students learning concepts of patient education and business in the classroom 
And it's so different when they actually get out into the communities and have to put it into practice. And some of the best students get nervous or doubt themselves. Um, they, they go through what we all went through in trying to produce, you know, programs of our own that we had a passion for. So I think it's really invaluable to try to create experiences like these for students to actually do it um, at the master's level. And yes, there, there are probably many programs like this at the doctoral level. So I think that um, these programs can, and then opportunities can even further be expanded. Um, so some of, you know, if anybody wants to read more about it, um, we did publish the model and an example of how our students worked with Appalachian Mountain people from Kentucky. Um, and it's been published in the Journal of Occupational Therapy and Healthcare. So that's just one example of many, I'm sure, that other people can highlight about how we can help inspire people and give them some of the basic skills to go out on their own and be motivated to, to create their own programs. Absolutely. That's such a great real-world example. Thank you so much, Patricia. All right, Rachel. How should we be preparing students and practitioners to be innovative leaders within the field of occupational therapy? Well, I am super impressed with everything that Patricia has done to promote that, and I would just agree that so it is so important for us to be pursuing non-traditional and community-based community, practice settings. Um, the way that I do that in my area is that you know, I'm, I'm not at an academic institution. I'm a clinician in the community, so I don't have kind of some of those opportunities to foster students in a direct way, except that I do through our local OT schools. And so what I've been able to do is partner with our occupational therapy schools in the area, um, and specifically with UAB, who has a groups and communities um, coursework program. And so that's entirely a course that their students take to teach the concept of basically community partnership and practicing OT at a population level. And it's really neat to get to be their community partner. So the way that program works is they get partnered with different people in the community and then the students have a project and they first have to just learn what population-based OT is and community-based practice can look like. and Really, it's so interesting to watch how, in the very beginning, it's really difficult for them to wrap their head around what what this really is. And then by the end, I have a project that they have to implement that relates to kind of our next phase that we're rolling out with Foster the Future. And to see them be able to take that on and implement that and be a part of, you know, bringing about some change in our community is just the greatest reward to me to get to be a part of their learning process. And so I think finding people out in the community that, you know, your students can partner with and kind of like what Patricia was saying, make those, you know, forge a path for, an, you know, for a fieldwork setting and find a way to make a place for OT where OT maybe hasn't traditionally been. I think that that is so important for us as a profession and for our students to see that the opportunities are truly endless if we're willing to just look around us. You are absolutely right, Rachel. All right, and next to Alex. How should we be preparing students and practitioners to be innovative leaders within the field of occupational therapy? So I'm going to uh, go back to question four and Rachel's statement about making a place for yourself. I thought that was a... Um, a brilliant statement because it really highlights um, how we can do this, uh, how we can be innovators within the community. Um, when I started uh, PAR4, it was primarily in an, in an academic institution. So as faculty, I started a program. So sometimes practitioners don't see the relevancy to something like that. So, you know, having the support of a larger institution. But the um, the other thing, but as I, um, as I, moved on and started uh, inclusive sports and fitness, I did that on my own as a sole practitioner. I didn't do that through the institution, although I do use it as part of um, my research and development within NYIT. And um, it was a, a challenge and it was a 
kind of a scary experience to start off and venture off on my own to start my own innovative practice. And uh, what I have to say is now I have two occupational therapists that are employed and an occupational therapy assistant that's employed. So there is potential for um, for developing community-based practice um, that can be, I, I won't say lucrative because I don't earn an income from it. My, my staff do. But it is um, something that could be lucrative. Um, I the other thing I, I have to say is that when when Rachel said making a place for yourself, like you know making uh, getting yourself out there, I think it's important that we take a take a chance and kind of remove ourselves from that that the institutional barriers that we're in and the clinics and the you know the um, whatever wherever it is you're working school based practice and kind of getting out there and meeting the community, uh, getting out and meeting advocates and community leaders. One of the things I often do with my fieldwork students at my uh, at ISF is when I have to meet with a school board or school uh, superintendent, if I'm meeting with a councilman about what I'm doing in my practice, I bring the students with me. I give them the opportunity to see what it, what it is, uh, how we discuss, um, how we navigate the world, and you know the bureaucracies within the institutions that we work with. Um, I think it's important that they understand from an experiential perspective where they, they get out there and get sort of their boots on the ground and, and learn from that experience. Um, so I think, our, you know, in preparing students, it's kind of leaving the, the classroom, the didactic, you know, um, coursework and kind of getting out there and experiencing what it's like to, to be out in the community. Another thing I think that's something, a person that has inspired me, uh, is uh, like Frank Cronenberg comes to mind. You know, when you listen to his very pro provocative views on occupation, it sort of uh, inspires and awakens the possibilities in students um, getting out into the community and practicing. So I, I think uh, bringing in people who are innovative and not afraid to try something new is, is pretty important. All right. Yeah, speaking about Frank Cronenberg, I actually got to hear him for the keynote for our fall conference in California. He was an awesome speaker. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It certainly is. Yeah. Yeah. So now my final question before we ask, we look at the Twitter chat or the TalkShoe website to see if there's any questions. And this question would be directed to Rachel. How are markets and our society's occupational needs changing given the current healthcare climate. What does this mean for future and existing practitioners with respect to innovation and leadership? I love this question because the truth is healthcare is changing and it's always going to be changing. Um, and we as occupational therapists are always going to be adjusting and reinventing ourselves as a profession based on society's occupational needs. And I think that we get into trouble when we see ourselves as a profession by preset methods or delivery models and lose sight of our roots. Because people are always going to need to engage in meaningful occupation. And that's just always going to matter. And so it doesn't really matter what changes with, um, you know, healthcare delivery models or even technology advancements, no matter kind of where we see ourselves as a society in 10, 20, 50, 100 years, it's occupation's gonna matter. It's important that we engage in meaningful lives. And so I really believe right now, one of the most powerful things that OT can do for society is to really look and see where people are disenfranchised. And then we need to go there. Um, I think that we have got to be asking hard questions about what barriers are actually really preventing people, communities, populations from having that equal access to meaningful occupation. Um, you know, we just so desperately need a more just world, and I just think that OTs are so equipped to be problem solvers in our communities, to work to tear barriers down, and as long as there are barriers, there's going to be work for us as occupational therapists to be doing. Um, but we got to be willing to get out there and do the work and implement practice in new ways and not allow ourselves to be defined by previous models of implementation. Um, 
you know, we can't just wait and hope that somebody sees our value. We've got to be out there doing the work, and then our evidence-based effective solutions work is going to demonstrate our value, and it will be undeniable kind of what occupational therapy's role is in our communities, um, no matter what changes we face. Very well said. Now, Alex, how are markets and our society's occupational needs changing given the current healthcare climate. What does this mean for future and existing practitioners with respect to innovation and leadership? So I love this question as well. I think uh, uh, it comes to mind. I, when I was a practitioner in Newark, I was uh, working in a level one trauma center and I noticed how people were being discharged without my, well, I would I would recommend going to a subacute facility or a rehab facility and the doctors would just discharge them to their home and they would be readmitted in two or three days. And it was very frustrating seeing the revolving door issues that we had with our patients. So that kind of was one of the, the reasons why I decided to go to law school and become a lawyer. Um, I wanted to be the best advocate I could possibly be. And um, unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, I did become a lawyer and uh, in, in New York State. However, I found that lawyers are not the lawyers that I was around weren't very nice, not like occupational therapists. Um, uh, so I, I, I came back to my roots. Um, occupational therapists can be the greatest advocates for clients. You don't need a law degree to become a, a, a great advocate. The um, one thing to keep in mind is that. We have to again. I can't reiterate enough that we can't we we can't be like um, afraid to try new or test new models of practice. Like we should consider community-based practice as an alternative to healthcare. Healthcare is riddled with bureaucracies and systems that are sometimes contra you know um, you know contradictory to to health and wellness. Um, I think. Any individual who uh, has the passion and drive can be an agent of change, Um, although being an agent of change can be more challenging. uh, Venturing into the community can lead to more personal satisfaction, and that's the satisfaction I found. Um, We can really uh, do a lot in helping promote the profession as well as we kind of leave the larger institutions and kind of venture off into communities. So I think... uh, Serving the underserved uh, is a great way to do that, um, and getting out and, and looking at the political and institutional arenas that that kind of um, are supporting underserved uh, and, and, and reaching out to them as a, as a way to get out in the community is a great way to do it. All right. So, Patricia, now the question is, how are markets and our societies occupational needs changing given the current healthcare climate. What does this mean for future and existing practitioners with respect to innovation and leadership? Well, Rachel, I liked what you said about we can't be defined by our previous models. I think we have to be flexible in times of change. And Alex, I like what you said about no fear. Um, I think as innovators, we really need to be role models about how to stay positive during changes. And I hear my students ask me in fear, am I going to have a job? There's so many uncertainties about the healthcare system. What about cuts? What about funding? And if negativity and doubt and fear creep in, it's like death. It's, it kills the creative process. There's nothing that can kill the creative process more than negativity, fear, and doubt. So, In order to avoid that, sometimes it it helps to stay focused on your innovation and not constantly be watching the news. It it doesn't mean not to be informed or that you don't care or that you're living in denial. It's just that you, you need to hear enough about what you need to hear in order to go do good. And that's how I think about it. Wonderful. Thank you for all the responses. At this time, I would like to open the floor for questions. All right, so we do have a question. How do you view failure as it relates to innovation? And this direct this question is directed to Alex. Okay. Um, 
I've had more failures uh, than success in my career. I think uh, one thing that you have to understand is that you're not going to find success unless you're persistent. Um, understanding that, like, navigating unfamiliar territory has its pitfalls. Um, and I think one of the major things that I found um, is that I had a, or I have, I still have this this problem. Um, I have a problem with... Uh, Although I mean I, I do I do surround myself with some amazing people, I also have had my share of kind of being undermined by people around me and not really being a good judge of character of the partnerships that I should have. Um, you'll find um, when you uh, have a great idea that there'll be lots of people that will want to join you, um, and um, whether they join you for uh, the right reasons or the wrong reasons, you have to be a good judge of that character. And I think one of the things I've done in the past, that one of the th failures I have, which is, is, is uh, something I'm still working on, is you know, underestimating or overestimating my community partners. Um, I think one community partner said to me that why she, she wanted to be a uh, partner with me, why she wanted to partner with me was that when I said I was going to call her the next day after meeting her the first time and I called her the next day, she said, a lot of people come to me with great ideas, but they don't follow through. Um, I think um, when you find the people that you think are worth working with, um, I think you've got to hold on to them and, and uh, sort of just kind of go with it. Uh, that, so I think one of the things I found most uh, difficult in navigating the uh, the community is working with the right people. All right. So, Patricia, same question. How do you view failure as it relates to innovation? Well, I think Alex said earlier that we should take responsibility for failure. And I agree with that. I think it's the first step in learning from failure. And since I'm a psychoanalyst, I like to analyze things. I work at night in my own private practice. So I would say analyze why things failed without blaming yourself or blaming anyone else. And if you do this, I think there really was no failure. Instead, it's like a readjustment based on your evaluation of the situation. So, you know, as innovators, we're having feelings and people who innovate tend to be driven by passion. Um, and that's natural. You can have your feelings, but... Um, my advice is not to let disappointment take up too much space and just learn well, to move on. Very well said. Rachel, how do you view failure as it relates to innovation? Well, I think that failure often forces innovation. <laughs> um, I think failure is part of the journey, and I think that when you learn from your failures, then you turn that failure into success. Um, you know, my whole practice area with foster care started because I felt a personal failure to a lot of the kids in my home because I wasn't able to overcome some of the red tape barriers that were preventing them from being able to access the services they needed. And that was really hard for me to feel like I couldn't be everything that they needed. And so I really had to sit with that and say, okay, am I going to accept that this is just the way it is? Or am I going to work to make things better? And I think that's fundamentally, you know, how we benefit from our failures, just reflecting on it, being honest with ourselves about how we maybe contributed to that failure, reflecting on it, growing from it, and moving forward. Um, I think anybody out there in the world that's doing anything that's interesting probably has a really long list of failures that go with any of their successes. I think that's just part of innovation. That's part of trying new things is knowing that failure is going to be a part of it. And if you learn from it, then you're going to grow and it's okay. Oh yeah. Funny thing is that, that I'm a fan, I'm a fan of Shark Tank, you know, so I definitely hear some <laughs> <pretty> stories. <laughs> so currently I don't see any questions on the Twitter chat or the, Talk to you website. So, uh, Emily, you can close now. <laughs> sure, absolutely. I want to be very mindful of everyone's time tonight. I do appreciate everyone who has hung with us through the entirety of our call. And if we 
don't have any additional questions, I do want to conclude tonight's episode by first briefly asking if our guests would like to share anything else with our audience before we sign off. No, I'd just like to say thank you for this opportunity. Absolutely. It is such a pleasure of ours as the community of leaders to be able to host events like this and to be able to have these kind of conversations with such meaningful folks that are out doing the work in our profession. Thank you. Thank you. Well, once again, a heartfelt thank you to our guests this evening, Alexander Lopez, Dr. Patricia Jean Preeson, and Rachel Ashcraft for participating. On behalf of our audience members and AOTA's community of leaders, I want to thank you for all of your contributions to this wonderful profession and for supporting the leadership development of AOTA members. Have a great night, everyone. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.